0: the onus is on us as providers to state where the value is in continuing this treatment, especially when it comes to the chronic pain workers comp population.
1: Hello, welcome to the Better Outcomes Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Each episode, we bring you a conversation with leaders across the healthcare industry, exploring topics ranging from new treatment techniques and interventions to novel service delivery methods and business models. And now, your host, Rafi Salazar from Rehab U Practice Solutions, a leader in patient engagement and retention strategy. Let's explore the possibilities of a new healthcare.
2: Well, hello again. Welcome to another episode of the Better Outcomes Show. I'm your host, Rafi Salazar with Rehab U Practice Solutions. And we are approaching the end of the year. It is December, mid December of 2023. And if you are organizing an event, you're looking at putting together speakers, you're gathering your lists and all that, you know, the calendar is getting opened up for this coming year. So I figured I'd put the plug in. You can go to, if you want to book me to speak, uh, you can go to speaking.raffysalzar.com, learn everything about there. We are doing, or I am doing, a few. Events already in Q1 and Q2 of 2024 that I'm excited about. More to follow on that if you follow me on LinkedIn. Um, but you can head over there, read a little bit about my bio, read about the book Better Outcomes a Guide to Humanizing Healthcare. Um, my goal is to help you and your organization or your audience receive the tools and insight necessary to help you. Uh, humanize healthcare to make healthcare human again so if that is interesting to you or something you're you're looking at putting together in 2024 trying to round out some speakers head on over to speaking.raffysalazar.com all righty and if you are looking to uh, explore and understand a little bit about insurance insurance denials Uh, maybe peer-to-peer review issues with your documentation, this episode is going to be uh, hopefully insightful and of value to you. This week, I'm speaking with a physical therapist. Her name is Johanna Metzger. She is the CEO of the Nourished Nest PT. But what she has also done for the last seven or eight years of her career is uh, she has worked as a uh, insurance reviewer, a documentation reviewer, and she has a lot of experience specifically in the commercial and the Medicare, Medicare Advantage space and the occupational health space, looking over notes and documentation from rehab clinicians and uh, helping tease out what is valuable in that note, in that documentation, and what is not. So when I was going through school, this is what 11, 12 years ago. Um, we were you probably were were told this too, going through school, like you need to document everything, you're covering your own butt, you're trying to prevent you know litigation, and then you're also trying to quote unquote justify services. And what ends up happening, I've noticed this a lot with students that come through the clinic. I've noticed this a lot when I'm reviewing. I do some lectures every now and then at the and some presentations and seminars at the university at the the ot program here and i will do whatever it is we're doing a case study we're you know talking about maybe shoulder dysfunction or upper extremity dysfunction and part of that seminar involves okay let's write this documentation up let's let's write an eval or a note or or something and the amount of extraneous stuff that gets put in this note is quite baffling and a lot of times it's because you know as uh, students and as clinicians even we're told you need a doc if you didn't document it it didn't exist or it didn't happen and you want to make sure that again you're you're crossing your t's and dotting your i's you're preventing litigation really is what it looks like we're trying to put so much in there that we can't you know we didn't forget anything or we didn't miss anything um but what we need to understand is that depending on who is paying for the services we talk a lot a lot about this in you know positioning and marketing strategy for some of the the healthcare technology companies that i work with the innovative healthcare companies like there are four stakeholders in healthcare there's the payer there's the provider there's the policy maker and then there's the patient and depending on who is paying for the services or who the documentation is really geared towards should really Drive some of those things that are highlighted in the note because each of those stakeholders view things and they're they are looking for different things in the documentation so this uh, conversation with Johanna is really talking and focusing on what are insurance companies looking for those payers those third party payers what do they want to see in a note what uh what information is important for them to help make the decision of are we going to continue to pay for these services? Because that tends to be um where a lot of those uh requests for authorization or continued authorization are denied or requests for more visits or or whatever the case is. I'm sure if you run a clinic of some kind or you're involved in clinical care and some of your payers or these these MCOs, these managed care organizations you've undoubtedly run into needing to do a peer-to-peer review call with a reviewer from that uh, insurance company, or you're submitting documentation hoping to get more visits for a patient that might legitimately need it. And oftentimes, it's not that there isn't enough information in the documentation. It's just that it's not the right kind of information, or the information is not presented in the way that the insurance company, who's the ultimate... I mean, call it what you want, they're the ultimate customer of this of this service here. Um, they want information a certain way to make decisions. And if even if you have the right information, it's just not presented correctly or it's not in the right um it's not facing the customer who's the ultimate decision maker, then you end up losing out on those visits anyways, or you, you know, you don't get approval or that you get a denial or whatever it is. So <coughs> Johanna shares a lot of information about Um, Well, we have we have a little conversation about the her shift from clinical work to utilization review and insurance review and and that. But then we the bulk of the discussion is all around what needs to be in the note. How do we need to think about our documentation as clinicians? Um, Hopefully you find this, like I said, very insightful. It's it's one thing. I know I handle this all the time at the clinic that I own and operate. You know, somebody's got a peer review with a. with you know blue cross or with you know cohere or some kind of managed care organization and there is a lot of emotion on the side of the the clinicians they're saying okay you know they they just want to deny this service and you know miss smith or, or mr jones or whoever it is really needs the really needs continued therapy in order to get better or whatever and without having the right documentation or the right information in the documentation, those visits get denied or the authorization gets denied, and it's very easy for the clinicians to get angry and upset. I mean, justifiably so, right? You want the patient to get services and now they're getting denied. So um, Johanna shares a lot of useful tidbits about how to make sure that you can decrease that, the risk of that happening to you and your organization. So without further ado, here's Johanna talking about uh, insurance uh, review, denials, and documentation. Well, hey johanna welcome to the show how are you good how are you i am doing all right i'm excited about diving into insurance denials specifically as they relate to physical and occupational therapy before before we dive too deep just tell us a little bit about yourself your experience and what brought you to what you're doing now
0: sure thanks for that so i have been a physical therapist for 21 going on 22 years back in the good old days where all you needed was a bachelor's. So going in in the early 2000s, you just had a different landscape as far as clinical treatment where you were seeing patients three times a week. You could write your assessment, tolerated treatment well, and continue plan of care. And that was 50% of the SOAP note. And it was just fine with the advancement of HMOs and just cost containment. Um, that definitely changed us to what we know PT to be today. Uh, I spent the majority of my early career in outpatient orthopedics, some neuro, and I got into occupational health, industrial rehab, workers' compensation. And really, and I am bilingual, speaking Spanish and English. At the time I was in Washington, DC, and then moved to Chicago, where I managed a series of clinics that we did work conditioning work hardening functional capacity evaluations and chronic pain management really working in that multidisciplinary approach i got a taste of how important your documentation and being very specific as to why you're saying what you're saying because someone is actually reading it and making decisions i think when we view our documentation as one way like unidirectional communication or unidirectional platform we just kind of get lazy and say whatever we think because no one's really going to read it, right? So through that, becoming a quality advisor in a workers' compensation role, in my last role in workers' compensation, I was an area mentor where I would go into clinics and cherry pick work comp charts and just kind of give therapists that very constructive, actionable feedback on you're seeing this patient, you've seen them for 60 to 70 visits, how are you moving the needle? Help unpack that for me. So no one likes to be called out necessarily because we as therapists may get defensive but really kind of holding a mirror up to those clinicians and saying hey i know that your skills are valuable you know your skills are valuable but if you're asking someone to spend resources on it the onus is on us as providers to state where the value is in continuing this treatment especially when it comes to the chronic pain workers comp population and that really kind of lit a fire under me to document better myself. And when you're doing a worker's comp note, especially when you're iterating material and non-material handling, you need to be saying why, you're, what you're seeing with that floor to waist lift, that waist to shoulder lift, what compensations are you seeing? And from that, that can justify, hey, this person needs more scapular strengthening because this is what I saw. So it was very easy. And I think every every therapist should be a work comp therapist because it makes you document better. So from that that really kind of lit a fire under me and about seven years ago we relocated from chicago to charlotte and i was just looking for a job like any job that wasn't full-time clinic treatment right pay me i know things so <laughs> i can do know things i'm kind of smart so from that i came across an opportunity with a major uh, third-party administrative company to do clinical review and it was a hundred percent remote a complete 180 from what i was doing driving everywhere so that was a little bit of shell shock but my my husband and i moved we bought a house we did all the things and had a suburban now we got a yard with a dog great what do we do (laughs) so that really kind of opened my eyes to now and and i've been on peer-to-peer calls and you get the angry fist the shaking angry fist, old man get off my lawn kind of thing but now having Seven years later, having been on the other side of that, so basically for the last seven years, I was doing clinical reviews for Medicare, Medicaid, and commercial insurance companies. And through that, just really reading on a daily basis, just crap documentation, superfluous information, where you kind of want to call the therapist and say, what were you exactly trying to tell me? Because you generated a document that's saying a whole lot of nothing, or it's a whole lot of not what too much of what we don't need and not enough of what we do need. And then there are times you get on a peer-to-peer call and you would be on with a very angry provider. And my mother, my abuela taught me one thing, right? She said, you have to separate the issue from the emotion. Yeah. And I think as providers, you just get too caught in the emotion and I get it. That's a, another soapbox, but I know you asked me about my intro. So finishing yeah. that up and we'll get to that um so seven years as a clinical reviewer during that time i had had struggles with fertility and fertility and the whole that's a whole separate other issue but you know pregnant had my son um, by ivf and through that found like oh crap there's really gaps in women's health my yeah. own firsthand experience you know they try to induce me to have a c-section i said no that's not what i need so Through that, I, um, about five years ago, got into pelvic floor physical therapy, got my certification through Evidence in Motion, started treating up until COVID, that shut that down. So I have gotten that, finally got my doctorate, so I'm with the rest of the congratulations, yeah. (laughs) Just like, whatever. And I became a lactation consultant. So on the side, I do work with women virtually and families virtually on that. But kind of dialing into what the meat and potatoes of why we're here today. Through the last seven years, you just get fatigued of being able to not feed of not being able to help providers and share actionable feedback to them of what we need. Yeah. And I think so many times as we're always worried about covering our asses. I don't know if I can say that on here, but I uh, just did. You can <laughs> we're, we're always worried, <laughs> we're worried about mitigating exposure. Yeah, liability and being, risk, right? like and i understand that but all these social media groups we see that clinicians are in well i can't say this like it's like but what if what you're saying is valuable and it's not if it's inflammatory to a point it needs to be to say to communicate a point then it needs to be said of course it needs to be constructive and supported with you know you know don't just say this patient is awful and they okay why are they not a candidate for therapy because you know they're worried about the gym over Sibeli's lawsuit and, and getting caught off and you know what i've been in this profession 22 years i've done plenty of medicare audits plenty of medicare treatment no one has come to knock on my door but i have been deposed seven times and i will tell you that's not a fun way to live but having been deposed seven times for workers comp cases the zoom out for clinicians is when you document and it is a habit for you and you establish those good documentation habits then you can't question your when you get questioned on your process when you get deposed or you get a medicare audit lean into the good clinical habits and skills that you have developed and it won't steer you wrong and that's not saying you but that's not licensed to become lazy yeah so all that is to say my my fire in my belly, aside from the women's health component, which is there, my fire in my belly is to give PT's, OT's, speech, any any provider who takes insurance, very clear cut, actionable feedback on what insurance companies look for, maybe the pitfalls that you fall into. I'm not saying you avoid insurance denials altogether, because there are times that providers are just treating just gratuitously and unnecessarily. And that's another that's another thing we need to keep in check, but that you just understand from the clinical reviewer side, what, what I see, what I look for, you know, what we look for so that you have that as a mirror to say, great. And now I take a look at how I document and how can I be more efficient, better and kind of cut the crap. So yeah, that answers.
2: Yeah, I think that's a discussion we've we've had around the like the PTOT industry for a while. Like we document a lot of stuff that doesn't need to be in there. So right. before we dive too deep into like the the disconnect, which we're talking about happening here between what insurance companies want or what they're looking for and what clinicians end up putting in the note, like what I guess the transition that you you've been on the the clinical side and you've been on the reviewer side. So as a clinical uh, a reviewer or peer to peer reviewer on the insurance side, looking at another clinician's documentation what are those things that you're looking for because you know i own a pt clinic i've worked in the in the space for a while like whenever there's a peer-to-peer review coming up either the admin team or the clinicians like they're just looking for stuff to deny so and obviously (laughs) the people that are reviewing documentations aren't just looking at least if it's an ethical company aren't looking just to simply deny services to deny services they're looking for a specific set of things so as a as a reviewer kind of what what are the big things you're looking for to say, okay, this justifies you know more treatment or really this treatment isn't necessary? Are there guidelines or a framework or is it an algorithm? Sure. Like how does that how does that work on on the reviewer side? And then we'll dive into the disconnect.
0: Sure. So I think it's a both and I think that some companies will use an algorithm with cursory information where you can input it on a web portal and it may give you a nominal amount of visits. Yeah. As far as it being a human reviewer. We're looking at, yes, age, diagnosis, comorbidities, and kind of that demographic information, but the why. Why are you treating this patient from your subjective and objective assessment? What are the impairments that you're treating? And what are the resultant functional losses that you're treating? And as the episode of care goes on, what benchmarks are you evaluating and reevaluating that either show progress, stagnation, or sometimes regression, and what are they, the quantitative and sometimes qualitative, but the quantitative benchmarks that you're using that show that, hey, this person is showing benefit from the result as a result of my skilled care. And if they are not progressing, what are those barriers to progress and why only skilled care can help to address them? I think that therapists misconstrue there's no question people will benefit from stepping into a space being served so to speak being have hands on having that listening and validating ear. We can all agree that that is a benefit.
2: Yeah, that's helpful. But
0: but when is that benefit really marginally or no different than implementing what you have done for them and kind of taking the ball and dribbling it and and running down the field whatever sports analogy you want to take with yeah. that. So
2: yeah, like at what point does at what point does them coming in to see a clinician every week or every other week provide marginal returns compared to okay, they've been given the skills, the tools, whatever, right. the exercises and they can manage it on their own. Like what what is the breaking point there?
0: Right. And I think in an insurance-based setting, which is different from like I own a cash practice. That is a full disclosure. Um, but still, when patients take super bills to their out of they I'm an out of network provider and they take them, I still have to meet the same criteria yeah. for the insurance company to consider that. Now the it's the patient problem at that point because I have my reimbursement right. Um, but to be very clear about the why, so for instance, and I this analogy I don't ever like to compare human bodies to inanimate objects, but if you go and get a quote for some service that you need done. You're going to want to know, and you say, Hey, like I had my air ducts cleaned yesterday. They gave me a quote and line item each item, right? If they were just to say to clean a whole house air duct, it's going to be $2,000. To not get curious around yeah. the why.
2: Exactly. The why value, are you charging me that much?
0: <laughs> right. Then you must have more money than Bezos. And, and God bless you. But I think that we need to have that same because at the end of the day, healthcare is a business. And we we as providers have to stay profitable. Insurance companies need to, everybody is, it it really, unfortunately, all is about the bottom line. So we do have to show value for what we are doing and why that value needs, it's important, right? If it were only the patient that needed to see the value, then it would be, we may be speaking a different set of criteria or value points or pain points to them than an insurance carrier. So as far as the criteria that we look for, number one, I wanted the why. What are you treating? And, and I'm gonna say this that pain is not a direct impairment. I will die on that hill. Pain is a is kind of a it latches on like yeah. a barnacle to different impairments, or it may impede different impairments. Yeah, but it's a it secondary
2: condition. Of, right. It's not. Yeah.
0: You know, we're talking range of motion, strength, balance, lack of proprioception. You know, those things that through our just special testing and all that crap that we do, that's what we uncover. And then from that, because of those impairments, what is the patient not able to do? They don't have eccentric quad strength. We know that's going to impact their sit to stand, getting up and out of the toilet, you know, putting on a, a pair of pants without sitting down, things that are mundane, but yet may be applicable. So when I'm on the phone with a provider, You know, the one pitfall, it's a frustration that I have, is that we are, we're kind of, unfortunately, we can't really ask open-ended questions that, uh, unfortunately, at times is discouraged. But for me, if I were sitting and wanting to know more about it, and I'm the gatekeeper between you and more visits, then I would want to know, please tell me what is going on with this patient. I'd want to ask targeted questions, but sometimes we, we as reviewers can be hindered because, We can't be perceived as directing care or, you know, we really have to leave it on that provider end to like, please let me know beyond what you've already submitted, what is going on with this patient or in your eyes, what are the barriers to progress or what are you seeing? I can. So really you as the provider, knowing those key points of the why of what you're treating and what are those benchmarks that you are. Capturing and and reassessing. You know, I can't tell you how many times where a patient or provider says to me, Yeah, well, they don't have great balance and they don't have great, you know, their gait is off. And I say, Great. Have you done a Berg Tinetti, you know, timed up and go? Have you done their gait speed or two minute walk test? Well, no, that sounds like a good idea. And I literally want to reach through (laughs) the the phone phone and choke somebody. Yeah. (laughs) And choke somebody. Like who, who lets you graduate PT school and not, this is like PT 101. Why are we not doing that? And I don't know where. Or maybe they did
2: it and they didn't document it, right? Like, oh, yeah, we did it kind of we we screened them as they walked in, but we didn't really document it down in the eval. It's like, why? Why not do that?
0: Right. And I will say back to doing a functional capacity evaluation. I assess sitting tolerance when the patient's in the waiting room. I I purposely had my desk where I could see where the patients would park and watch them walk in because sometimes the way they walk from their car (laughs) to the door was different than from the door to the chair. And that was curious. I was curious about that. So you're always collecting that data and just know that the data doesn't have to be confirmed um another point i will make is that performance-based functional outcome measures like a Berg, a tinetti a timed up and go a five time sit to stand um six minute walk test or two minute walk test a three minute step test all of those are very easy to render You can gather so much information from it and you can it's research backed and all that kind of stuff but it's so easy to assess and then reassess i don't need every single assessment tool in the world because another thing i hear from providers well i spend every other note reassessing it's like well pick pick a cursory amount of things reassess provide the data but i don't give me a berg on the eval then a tanetti at 30 days then a, try to keep that consistency so yeah, we can, so you can see, see progress. progress
2: yeah yeah i want to back up because I mean, sure. you just shared a whole bunch of value there but backing up to what you said kind of near the near the beginning of that you said okay so healthcare is a business we got to make the bottom line work and then you did say something that i want to highlight you said well if i was having this conversation with a patient about the value and what we're going to provide and all that, I might say something differently than what I say for insurance companies. I think that's something very, very important to highlight is that a lot of times as clinicians, we tend to see our, and I might get in trouble for saying this, but we tend to see our customer as the patient, but in an insurance-based model or workman's comp or something like that, really the, the customers who's paying for the for the service, right? And in that case, it's going to be the insurance company in a lot of ways. I mean, sure, the, the patient might have a copay or they might be paying some kind of coinsurance, but the one of the big stakeholders that we tend to forget, we look at them as an enemy almost, but they are funding the service, is that insurance provider. And I think just that having that disconnect there, like you said, kind of the way we document is going to be a little differently, or the way we explain value needs to be focused towards that audience. And when we're writing a note. A lot of times, um, it's for the payer, and the payer needs to understand what's what's important, what's valuable, and not necessarily the patient, right?
0: Correct. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that you may have the same assessment, but how you're pitching it to an insurance payer versus a patient is going to be different. You know, it's always that any business coach will tell you: you sell the vacation, not the plane ticket. You sell yeah. the good night's sleep, not the mattress. So communicating the the optimal result of what your service can go what you're getting towards whether it's a reduction in fall risk because I'm implementing these interventions to work on this impairment that I quantified by this functional outcome score. The patient just wants to be able to walk across the street and not worry about falling so they can you know if they're in an urban area that's what's important to them and you're going to say that same communicate that package that same statement in a different way to the insurance carrier but you know the biggest thing that that people get frustrated about is ADLs now yeah. most commercial insurance companies are going to follow medicare guidelines and medicare you know i can pull up the compliance rules but in the benefit policy manual more or less says if it's not related to an activity of daily living we it's not under our purview Meaning that if the patient is at a community dwelling level of function, I'm out of here. I don't give a rip if they can golf or not. I don't give yeah. a rip if they can hike. And to me, that is, I get it. But on the other hand, that kind of feeds into the whole, we're not helping patients and enabling them, which we are the best people leveraged to do it, to get more on the wellness side of things versus just hiring a trainer on social media, which I'll save that for another time. Yeah. But- that is the medicare guideline so i will try to tease out on a peer-to-peer or anytime i'm in in front of that audience please help me understand on an adl level what is is there anything your patient struggles with Said they may concurrently struggle with being able to hike or what have you but if they also have difficulty going up and down a lot of stairs because they live in a, a third row yeah. or third level flat great that justifies the use of skilled care so you know understand that we as insurance reviewers are not the enemy we are arbiters of the rules that either your health plan has in place or medicare has in place yeah yeah and kind of is what it is well and
2: i think there's that whole fact too that a lot of clinicians and patients too believe that insurance should pay for everything right like oh the insurance should pay for it i'm having pain yada 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 but I think there was uh, an example like Aetna commercial or something like that doesn't reimburse for sports medicine, physical therapy. Like if you have an orthopedic surgery, they'll pay for that. But if you tweak your shoulder throwing a baseball, at least back in 20, 2021 or something like that, when we were looking at the the rules, like they weren't going to pay for that. And I know clinicians are like, well, oh, my gosh, why not? And there isn't this the shift in the mindset should be like, okay, well, this now just becomes a wellness service that we're providing that maybe we pay cash or you charge cash for. It's a totally different thing. It's not medically necessary, quote unquote, according to the insurance company, but we know there's value there and we know that there's right. we're going to provide an improved quality of life. I think clinicians sometimes see it like, oh, if insurance doesn't pay for it, then they're saying it's not valuable. And that's not what that means what it means is that the insurance is targeting a very specific area of function or functional performance and just because they're not going to pay for you know treatment a doesn't mean they don't think it's valuable it's just not what they're covering right and i think that that needs to be part of the discussion as well like okay just because it's not covered doesn't mean that we're saying it's not valuable it just means that your patient is responsible for the cost right
0: right right and i think that kind of factors into there's a meme that insurance is all about paying for some paying a lot of money to get sick or get hurt and to pay a whole bunch more money and yeah. nothing could be closer to the truth right that unless you have you know a pregnancy it's kind of we joked about this with moms who have you know who have babies right once you've met that deductible on opaca max anything you need done for the rest of the year you do all the things right i had two orthopedic surgeries the same year i had my son so i i just got it all done because it yeah. was paid for but you're right in that it's just the reality of what we need but and i think that we're going to you kind of can crap in one hand and wish in the other and see what piles up first that yes i wish that an insurance company would latch more onto the preventative the wellness type things and i think you're starting to see that with some yeah. incentives but you know for instance When I was working for an insurance company, we were basically self-insured and they would offer up to eight virtual physical therapy visits that you could use for whatever you wanted, which I thought was kind of cool. I mean, I'm a PT, so I don't use it, but all the other people who work for that company that didn't, that's a nice service that they're providing. So there may be within the employer benefit package stuff that your company offers. But for instance, there are certain things that should be just standard of care. Anyone who has a wellness like at a certain age why don't you go see a physical therapist to kind of look at overall movement and and that would be a nice way maybe to get that stream of referrals not just wait until someone has it they fracture a patella or they get an acl reconstruction or have a wrist injury or what have you but i think it that that's kind of zooming out and and where are the gaps in our healthcare system which that's that's like ten thousand bajillion podcast episodes but as far as you know, that you're stating again, I will say it 10,000 times, but being very, very clear on your why for treating the patient. And I think back to your point, the why of treating the patient, you're kind of coding it, phrasing it differently for that insurance company, but also being very key to the patient of listening to what their goals are and kind of learning to to reverse engineer or distill that into, hey, I'm not able to, you know, for a lot of my patients, I'm not able to pee without, you know, I can't start a urine stream without straining. That's a big deal to them. So I have to code that and to say, okay, what may be going on based and I'm compiling that with my internal external assessment to the payer. But that's a goal for them right so a goal if you're in a sports situation could be i want to be able to play soccer and run and cut and jump you know without feeling instability in my knee great you have your subjective objective assessment and now you're filtering that and communicating that to your payer so i think that and you're being able to clearly state it it kind of all filters down the soap model is just it's it's old it's old as heck but it just (laughs) Sorry. Yeah, sorry. It's old as heck, but it's like, it, it, it works. It works. Yeah. It works. And being again, cognizant, clearly stating your objective information, be cognizant and intentional about your wording, use functional outcome tools that are appropriate to your patient. You know, what I get on the phone that, um, you know, most commercial or most TPAs or your third party administrators may have a cursory number of what I call the cardinal outcomes tools so your ndi ndi odi quick dash and your lefs you know what you are not contained i for the mic people on the mic at the end of the other microphone you are not contained to only those four outcomes tools there's so many there's an inordinate amount rehabmeasures.org which is funded by the shirley ryan ability lab out of chicago they have if if you have a diagnosis or a patient population that you want to assess just search the database. They have so many good outcomes tools that I have come across. You know, the functional independence measure, the, you know, the PFDI and the POPD are specific to my population, but so many good ones that are just focus on your situation. Yes, the LEFS to me is useless if you're talking about someone in their 70s who had a hip replacement. They're not running three blocks. They're yeah. not doing that. That's not on their bingo card for the day. So you pick what does matter, gait speed. That's not going to matter to a 16-year-old, but it is going to matter to somebody maybe in their 60s, 70s. So again, that you're using the functional outcomes tools that are appropriate to your patient. Don't use the excuse that whatever's on the sheet is all I can provide. Because I'm telling you, I'm giving you the permission you don't need. If you want to say they walk in the clinic, their step length is this, and and it took them this long to walk this distance, great. Or one thing I used to do when I worked skilled nursing, I used to watch somebody get up off the toilet. You know, they had shorts on or, you know, under, underwear, whatever. I wanted to watch them pull their pants back up. They just had a knee replacement. So how are they able to do that? That mundane task, I mean, being able to time it and watch it and comment on it, then time two weeks or what have you, I time it, I watch it, and I comment on it to be able to say, you know what? This person is able to do that. And I think those little mundane things we overlook, but kind of zooming in, that's what's relevant to our patient. So all that is to say that the performance-based functional outcomes tools, of which the, the four that I mentioned are not, um, they're there, they're data points. But on top of that, watch somebody what they do. Watch them what they do. Can I time it? Can I quantify or qualitatively describe certain things about how they're doing it? succinctly, and then I I watch them do that same thing, taking off and putting on their shoes. So it's just thinking outside the box of what I can do to capture for that reader, the insurance company reviewer, um, how the patient's doing. Because all the fun fun stuff that we do and all the interventions and the Ultra-G treadmill and all the good fun stuff, that's great, but it also incurs a lot of costs, a lot of flash. What results is it yielding? You know, I argue, and what, you know, my next venture is that I don't, when I have a patient, you know, the virtual patients I see, what they need is themselves and and a floor. I I try to minimize the equipment they need because that's yeah. another barrier to doing, replicating this outside of the house or outside of the clinic. So you, and avoiding the fluff. I think that it's, there is a certain EMR system. I don't know if it's, you know, WebPT or what have and. I love what PT. I love those EMR systems because I think they kind of corral the cats so to speak. Yeah. Um but it's the situation is evolving with changing characteristics. It's just some BS statement that's there. I'm like, why is this there? It says nothing. Yeah. So again, reading your statements, what is this saying? And if it's not saying anything, take it out. Okay. I'll pause and I'll let you. Ask
2: no, I mean that's that's good. I think again, like a point too is the idea of like reducing costs. I don't think clinicians we might be a little bit cognizant of it for patients, especially if they have a copay or co-insurance. Um, but if the ultimate goal is re- like increased efficiency and improved clinical outcomes at a reduced cost, that does have to translate over to the insurance company, right? And at some level, like the only lever that the insurance company could pull on is either decreasing reimbursement or denying care right like they can't do much else to reduce the the how much you're spending on health care right so it is only natural that we've over the last what couple decades we've seen the the amount of reimbursement going down and we're also seeing the amount of denials going up because there's there has not been much of a consistent effort on the pt ot side of things and i'll say this as a as a practitioner and a business owner like we have not been doing our part to make sure that the insurance companies are saving money right we've we're focused on getting the patient you know pain free or whatever but we're not worried about is this the right number of visits can we cut visits out can we do whatever and part of that is the skewed incentives in healthcare, fee-for-service model and all that we can dive into that later but right. there it is almost an a, a logical conclusion like we were going to find ourselves in the situation where we're at now right it's just right part of the, part of how healthcare is paid for and who's paying for it. But um, right. so I guess kind of wrapping this up, what are, what are some of the big tips you've already given a, a lot about you know documenting actually what you see and you're thinking and the why, but what are the, kind of like the two or three main tips you'd give a clinician to avoid either a peer-to-peer review or an insurance denial? Because I'm assuming sure. if you can document it well enough ahead of time, you can avoid some of those peer-to-peer calls down the line, right?
0: right. Correct. And I will. And that's kind of something, frankly, I've gotten into trouble for. And I, I'm kind of, you know, scratching my head with one finger when I listen to that feedback from the powers that be, because at the end of the day, us as clinical insurance reviewers, our customer, if we're going that route is the provider, we are there to service them and be the arbiter agency of the insurance company to give them the yay or nay. And by the way, a peer-to-peer review is not the end all be all. There are always next steps. So please, providers, if you're on the phone with that insurance reviewer, then ask them, ask them that. What is the next step in this process? Because maybe some some companies out there may not state that. Or read the facts that we send you. Please read that. Cause I know and it, you know, I know it's another thing to do. And the administrative burden that this process puts on providers, I I really want to scream some. I, I do scream sometimes not on a podcast though, please, 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 please try to concisely read that to prepare yourself and ask what are the next steps. But as far as avoiding the peer-to-peer, be very clear about the impairment that you are treating, the functional loss, whether it's the patient goal, you know the patient wants to be able to th- do this, or you are seeing what maybe they're not doing as optimally as you would like to see them doing, So, the impairment that you see, the functional ADL related loss that that impairment is limiting, and what scope of interventions you and only you are doing that only a skilled provider can do, or the majority of which that supports that kind of sequence supports that patient being in your four walls instead of in their own four walls and being extremely clear about what that is. As far as the, the data, Again, we've talked about performance based outcome tools versus questionnaire based outcomes tools. I lean more towards tell me what the patient showed you, whether it's a formal Berg blah, 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 or it's I had them sit and take off a pair of shoes, and this is what I saw. They didn't have sufficient external rotation. They had to, you know, do, they had to rotate and side bend at their lumbar spine to get that movement. Great. That tells me something. And number three, Um, I would, I would say avoid, please avoid the fluff. That whole impairment, functional loss. This is what I'm doing should be enough for me to say yes. And then you repeat that process at eval and reeval to be able to say yes, or understand or identifying what those barriers to progress is. and just a couple of disclaimers. Do not, please, 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 mia boelita. She told me, do not confuse the issue with the emotion. I understand, and you are the one who's going to have to hear that patient bitch on the phone. And I understand, as someone who has had care for my son denied, and I've had to write a formal appeal and a grievance and talk to. But I know the system, and I leverage what I know to get the results I need. So understand that that is a valid emotion but it doesn't help solve the issue so deal with the issue by all those tips we just outlined please do not catastrophize or threaten your reviewer it doesn't get (laughs) you anywhere like it legit doesn't because i understand but i will just say to abusive callers you know i'm sorry i have to terminate this call it seems we're not able to achieve a productive line of discourse yeah and unfortunately
2: there's nothing I, I you do get, once they hang up the phone.
0: <laughs> I, I can't. Right. And I I just, I, I want to help you. It's it's kind of like Jerry Maguire, help me help you. I'm dating myself by quoting that movie, but help me help you. So why and only why is continued skilled care necessary? Again, communicating your why. So listing again, the problems are superfluous and ineffective documentation, missing the mark with your reader. And increasing friction points to care access. Like we all don't want that. So again, you want to evaluate your documentation habits. And am I following that that steps I outlined? You're including clear and objective information, keeping it simple. The meat, not the fat. I love me a good yeah. I love me a good wagyu steak. Like don't give me a ribeye, please don't. So that all being said, I. Any other questions for me? This has been a supreme pleasure to just vent. It's yeah. like Festivus. No, but, it's been no, great. It's been no.
2: wonderful. Um, where can people, because I know you've, you've done a webinar on this in the past. And I think you've got some stuff coming up about this. So I do. where can people connect with you about sure. this? Uh, learn more sure. about what you're doing. Maybe see some of these webinars that you're coming out with. Sure. Sure. So
0: yes, I have done a couple of webinars, my top three tips in avoiding insurance denials. I will be doing that again in early q1 of 2024 so i am at the nourished nest pt on instagram you can also find me on linkedin if you go to www.thenourishednestpt.com it is a d um in there you will see on my work with me or for clinicians page so that's kind of where it is okay um and i will i do work one-on-one um with clinicians to kind of review documentation give you my tips i just finished up know with one case that was extremely lengthy but again i'm trying to give you tips and tricks to kind of get that documentation reined in for your reader and just help you you know using documentation as the best way you can advocate for your patients because it may be the only representation of the services that anybody reads so i i want to help you help your patients really really i do so um I appreciate your time, Rafi. Am I yeah. saying your name right? Yeah, Yes, it now. you did.
2: <laughs> That's awesome. Papa.
0: All right, man. So, I appreciate it so, so much.
2: Yeah. Thanks. Have a good one. We'll link to everything in the show notes.
0: All right. Sounds good. Have a good one.
2: All righty. Well, hope you enjoyed that conversation with Johanna talking about insurance review, denials, documentation, what needs to be in there, yada, yada, yada. Listening back now to the the conversation, a few things I want to highlight that I don't think it talked enough about enough, talked enough talked about enough in the space that I spend a lot of my time in. I'm an occupational therapist. I work a lot with physical therapists, occupational therapists. I own a PT clinic. One of the things that n- does not get talked about in a in a productive way in my in my opinion is the idea of what healthcare will healthcare insurance is first of all what it will and will not cover and what that means for us the clinicians i think the example i brought up in this conversation was how one commercial insurance company didn't cover sports medicine Uh, they didn't cover physical or occupational therapy for sports medicine or sports injuries because to them that wasn't a service that they were going to provide for their beneficiaries so there's two big ideas there that i want to highlight the first is that health insurance is not meant to or designed to cover absolutely everything. And I think that is a big misconception in the general public. And it's one of those, if you bring this topic up, you're almost looked at as, you know, the the bad words start flying, right? Like insurance should cover everything. And there's a lot of even public discourse and political discourse, I'm not gonna get into any of those things, but the reality is that insurance, like health insurance, the contract between the, the payer and the patient is a contract where the patient is agreeing to pay the provider, the, the insurance uh, company, um, a certain fee, a certain premium in order to share expenses or to have certain healthcare procedures covered or paid for by that insurance payer so that contractual relationship is clearly defined in the user benefits manual and if it's not I mean you can argue about whether or not maybe it's ethical or whether the insurance company might consider doing it in order to attract more customers and provide more value to the patients but the reality is it is a contract and the insurance uh, provider is being very upfront about what they will and will not cover. So that means one, we should not be upset about things not being covered after the fact because you should know that going into it, right? The other thing is this idea about where the value is in in healthcare, and the fact that you know commercial payer A won't pay for this service means that they don't consider it valuable. And we almost take it as clinicians as an affront, like, well, they need to see our value and pay us for those services and the patient should not have to pay out of pocket. But the reality is, again, if you look at what insurance is supposed to be, it is supposed to be something that provides coverage for certain healthcare procedures and it is a contractual relationship, hopefully freely entered into between the parties. And it it is not necessarily a denunciation of the value being provided the perceived value there if a payer won't pay for a service it just means that they don't cover it maybe it's too costly for them maybe their cash flow doesn't allow it or for their business model and revenue model they realize they can't afford to pay for this service so they're just not going to offer it it has nothing to do with whether or not they believe it's valuable or they think that it's uh, evidence-based of course there are some types of treatments and cover and and services out there that are denied because they're not evidence-based or they don't have the, the literature backing yet or something like that, healthcare technology, some of these um, up-and-coming uh, digital, uh, digital health, for example, and telemedicine and all of that is one of those things that kind of fell under this blanket of, well, we don't have enough evidence yet to, to show that it's beneficial, so we're not going to cover it yet, but it's on the roadmap, right? Um, that's a different thing entirely than saying, we as an insurance company, as the payer, just decided that we're we're not going to be in the sports medicine game, for example. That does not mean that they don't think it's valuable or that they don't think the treatment works. It just means that for their plan, for this business model of theirs, they're not going to cover it. So what that should mean to us as the clinicians and probably to the patient as well is that this is a service that maybe it is something that we specialize in, we have certifications in. That should mean to us, like, okay, well, that just means that now my conversation, the relationship, the exchange here is now not going to be between me and this patient's insurance company. It's going to be between me and the patient. And if the patient finds it truly valuable, then they'll pay for it. And oftentimes we as clinicians, I've said this for years, we as clinicians fall behind the blanket or we use it as a wall, almost a barricade, if insurance pay for it if insurance pays for it then we don't have to justify our value to the patient and the reality is as we move into a more consumer driven value based uh, healthcare landscape in the future We as clinicians need to lean into those discussions and say, yeah, listen, your insurance won't pay for it because your plan doesn't cover it or whatever. We still know that it is valuable, and this is why it is valuable for your specific situation. These are the benefits you'll receive from it. This is the value our engagement in this treatment is going to provide for you. And being able to have those value discussions with patients is going to help us in the long run to become and, and really maintain relevancy as a as a healthcare profession, speaking primarily now to the rehab clinicians in there, but it it's the same for any specialty. If your service is not per, is not covered by a patient's insurance plan, a perfect example here is allergists, right? And I just think about this because we have had to go to go to an allergist recently with with one of my kids like they know they're out of network or dentists like they know they're out of network with everybody and they don't care because they know what they what they are providing works and that it's valuable and patients continue to pay why because it is it works and it's valuable as clinicians oftentimes we can fall into this we we just avoid having those value discussions and we feel like we don't need to because insurance is paying as we move into this world where more and more things are not going to be paid for by by insurance companies we need to be comfortable having those value discussions with patients so um that's just one of those side notes that i thought of listening to this this episode listening to this conversation thinking it's it's worth having this conversation so anyways hopefully again you found the discussion valuable especially if you're in the world of trying to document uh your services to get paid so hopefully it was helpful to you in that regard all right i think that's all i've got this week um if you like the show share it with somebody that you think would find it entertaining and valuable i used to say leave us a rating and a review but i think it's more impactful if you just share the message right so share it with somebody colleague friend patient whatever um, it would help out a lot, and that's more valuable to me than, than the, the thumbs up or the five-star ratings we have on iTunes, though we do have some of those as well. <laughs> and if you are an innovative healthcare company, an organization, a service provider, or a technology or device company, and you are looking to develop an effective, succinct, and unique positioning strategy for your company, then check out the Positioning Alignment Workshop Basically what we do with this positioning alignment workshop we help you answer the question value to whom so obviously as we've discussed here different stakeholders uh, they value things differently and what they look for in a service or in a product is uh, very much influenced by their position in the value chain right so different stakeholders perspectives will determine what they consider valuable and the outcomes they seek from healthcare services or devices or technology providers. So by narrowing down that value to whom question, you have a clear idea of how your technology, your device, your software, or even your healthcare service is positioned to solve the problems faced by your targeted patient or healthcare stakeholder. If that is something you are interested in doing um, and working through, you can check out the positioning alignment workshop. You can find more about that at positioning.rehabupracticesolutions.com. That's positioning.rehab, the letter U, practicesolutions.com. Until the next time, be safe, be healthy. I will talk to you then.
1: Thanks for listening to the Better Outcomes Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Our hope is that you walk away from each episode informed, equipped, and empowered to push the boundaries in your own practice or business. We want to give you the tools to help you build strong, long-lasting relationships with your patients and clients, helping meet their goals, improve their health, and achieve better outcomes. Learn more at www. Rehabyoupracticesolutions.com. We'll catch you on the next episode.